Welcome, listeners, to Cults Anon. The first rule of Cults Anon is that we don't talk about cults. And the second rule of Cults Anon is that we don't talk about cults. I'm your host and podcast creator, Bailey Rivers. Let's talk about cults. If you are new to the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe and make an offering of a rating and a review to appease the fickle gods of the algorithm. Follow me on Instagram at Bailey Rivers with two S's at the end for podcast updates and weekly bonus content. Welcome to part two of our deep dive into the Unification Church of the United States, better known as the Moonies, after their founder and leader, Sun Myung Moon. Last week, we discussed the complicated political and social circumstances that enabled the Moonies to rise to power in the newly established Republic of Korea post-World War II. If you missed that episode, I recommend that you go back and listen to part one for proper context before continuing here in part two. We pick up the crazy story of Sun Myung Moon and his CIA-backed polygamous Presbyterian cult with the beginning of his infiltration into Japanese society in the 1960s. Moon and the Unification Church were enthusiastically welcomed into the country of Japan by then-Prime Minister Nobusuke Kishi, who is known by the moniker Showa no Yukai, or the Monster of the Showa Era, a nickname that reflected his, by all accounts well-deserved, reputation for being a genocidal war criminal before, during, and after World War II. Nobusuke Kishi was born in Yamaguchi Prefecture in 1896. He came from a once prominent family of samurais, the Japanese equivalent of feudal vassals similar to the knights of Western monarchs. Kishi became involved in politics and international trade at an early age when he pursued a career as a Japanese bureaucrat. He entered the Ministry of Commerce and Industry after graduating from Tokyo University and became interested in what he saw as the potentials of industrialization. He also became a huge fan of the ideologies of Nazi Germany, particularly the concept of industrial cartels that was developed by the Nazi party. In what is known as the Manchurian Incident, in September of 1931, the Japanese army invaded the Chinese region of Manchuria and turned it into the Japanese colony of Manchukuo. In 1935, the Japanese army, impressed with Kishi's vocal support of Nazi fascist ideologies, appointed him the Deputy Minister of Industrial Development in Manchukuo. The Japanese government gave Kishi free reign to do as he liked as long as the profits generated by the colony kept increasing, leaving Kishi to gleefully implement the standard Nazi approach to enslaving a country and workforce to the rule of an imperial power, which just so happens to coincide almost exactly with the Bites model of power and control that we use to identify toxic and abusive cults here on Cults Anon. Go back and listen to the first episode if you haven't yet for a refresher on the Bites model. 
The establishment of gangs or industrial cartels run through the use of violence and fear that allows the leaders to steal the money and labor of their workers, often with an ever-increasing demand for more, all the while denying the basic humanity of the workers, in a profits-before-people, money-and-power-over-all-else approach, divides a people and leaves them open to conquest and exploitation. Kishi himself was deeply involved in and profited from the opioid trade during his time in China, as well as implementing and encouraging his colleagues to practice widespread money laundering. In 1939, Kishi became Minister of Commerce in the government of Prince Fumimaro Konoe, and he attempted to implement similar economic and social policies in Japan as he had in the colonial state of Manchukuo. These plans were met with opposition, and Kishi was fired from his position in 1940, but he was reinstated just a year later in 1941 under the new prime minister, General Hideki Tojo, who he had worked closely with in Manchuria. In December of 1941, Japan declared war on the USA and Britain. The war did not go that well for Japan, and it became increasingly clear to Kishi that Japan's loss to the states was inevitable. His loyalty to Tojo faded, and he undermined the stability of Tojo's government in an effort to consolidate more political power for himself before Japan surrendered to the Allied forces in August 1945. Although he was briefly imprisoned for war crimes after the surrender, he was never officially tried or even charged, and he was released in 1948. Let's speak for a moment about what some of Nobusuke Kishi's war crimes were. Kishi's long history of almost unimaginable brutal human rights violations is too varied and horrific for even me to stomach covering most of it here, but I will take the time to mention the so-called comfort women. During the horrific imperialist war that fascist Nazi collaborators in the Japanese government waged against their neighbors during World War II, the Japanese military institutionalized a practice of mass child gang rape by setting up a system where Japanese men would abduct underage girls in Korea, China, and even from within Japan, who once stolen from their families were labeled property of the Japanese government and shipped off as military supplies to every active platoon to be gang-raped by Japanese soldiers. That was Tojo and Kishi's idea of a little R&R. Hitler must have been so proud of them when they all met in hell. The Japanese government has to this day never issued a public apology or made any type of reparations to the women who were so horrifically victimized by the Japanese military during the conflict. Many of the comfort women who managed to survive this brutal ordeal are to this day still awaiting some form of justice. And this is the man... Every Hitler-loving, drug-dealing, violent, rapist, slave-owning, psychopathic inch of him that the United States federal government handpicked to become their puppet leader in the newly formed post-war Japanese government. A group of influential American businessmen, you know, the type of guys who just happen to have a lot of money and a lot of land and a lot of employees and a statue of Hitler in their backyard, but it's just decorative, don't worry about it 
formed an American Council on Japan and lobbied, aka bribed, the federal government to release Kishi from prison and instead instate him as Prime Minister of Japan because he was the guy most likely to lead the country in a, quote, pro-America direction. Interesting choices that we are making here. And a relatively short nine years after he was released from prison for his horrific war crimes, in February 1957, Nobusuke Kishi was appointed Prime Minister of Japan. Wah, wah. After serving two terms as Prime Minister, it became clear in 1959 that Kishi intended to break the two-term limit precedent and establish himself as an authoritarian dictator. He was met with resistance, not just from members of opposing political parties, but also from within his own conservative Democratic Liberal Party. The names of political parties are often chosen to be intentionally confusing to voters, so this may seem counterintuitive to a lot of American listeners in my audience, because here in the USA, the Democratic Party and the term liberal tend to be associated with progressive, leftist political ideologies. But in Japan, the Democratic Liberal Party are extremely conservative, militant authoritarians, at least under the leadership of Nobusuke Kishi, the monster of the Showa era. The name of Kishi's party was in all likelihood chosen in part with the express intention of confusing the general public in America about the political landscape being created in the puppet state of post-war Japan. Indeed, the misinformation that was presented to the American public at the time regarding Kishi is nauseating, to say the least. To quote directly from the peer-reviewed and publicly available source of the Wikipedia article about Nobusuke Kishi, quote, Kishi appeared on the January 25th, 1960 cover of Time magazine, which declared that the prime minister's, quote, 134-pound body packed pride, power, and passion, a perfect embodiment of his country's amazing resurgence, end quote. While Newsweek called him the, quote, friendly, savvy salesman from Japan who had created the economic powerhouse of Asia, end quote. First of all, and I say this with the utmost possible offense intended, Nobusuke Kishi looks like a ghoul had sex with a zombie and their monstrous offspring was resurrected from the pits of hell by Dr. Frankenstein. Second of all, Newsweek was really out there doing the most for the monster of the Showa era, particularly considering that Newsweek journalists Harry Kern and Compton Pakenham were both active members of the American Council on Japan that had bribed, <coughs> I mean lobbied, sorry, lobbied the U.S. federal government to free Nazi fanboy genocidal maniac Kishi from jail and then make him prime minister. Interestingly, 
Newsweek is basically a subsidiary of Time Magazine. This January 25th, 1960 article in Time Magazine, trying to whitewash Kishi's image to the American public, was at the beginning of a year that a lot of things went down in both Japan and Korea that were huge in deciding the political and social directions the countries would take for the next half century. The timeline of events that took place during the year of 1960 is pretty tight. In Japan, the opposition against Kishi intensified into what is known as the Anpo protests. The vast majority of Japanese citizens were opposed to Kishi's attempts to ratify a new security treaty with the Eisenhower administration that would allow Japan to reinstate its military. This was Kishi's ultimate political goal and desire, and he desperately squashed both public and political opposition to his plan. Kishi signed the new treaty with Eisenhower on January 19, 1960, just a week before the Time magazine cover story, and Kishi invited Eisenhower to visit Japan on June 19, 1960, to celebrate the newly signed treaty's ratification. That left Kishi with only five months before the Eisenhower visit to get the new security treaty ratified in the Japanese diet, or his bid to basically become a fascist dictator of Japan would be thwarted. His opponents rallied against the treaty's ratification. A nationwide coalition was founded in 1959 called, and I'm just out here going for it on the Japanese pronunciation, so apologies for that, Anpo Joyaku Kaitei Soshi Kokumen Kaigi, or the People's Council for Preventing Revision of the Security Treaty. Radical leftist student activists formed the Zenga Kurin Student Federation in opposition to the treaty, and members of the opposition party to Kishi's conservative Democratic Liberal Party, the Japanese Socialist Party, collaborated with Kishi's conservative rivals to further delay the treaty's ratification. With the Eisenhower visit closing in, Kishi announced a sudden vote to ratify the treaty on May 19th. When socialist diet members attempted a sit-in in protest against the vote, Kishi ordered them dragged out of the diet by 500 police officers in a desperate display of strongman fascist bullshit. It didn't work. The May 19th incident further tarnished Kishi's reputation, and even former conservative supporters began calling for his resignation. The Soyo Labor Federation began staging nationwide labor strikes, and protests were held outside the National Diet Building almost daily. On June 10th, some assholes from the USA decided to stir the pot in favor of their boy Kishi, and White House Press Secretary James Haggerty flew over to Japan in what he claimed was a visit just to make sure it was safe for Eisenhower to be there. But when he was picked up from the airport by then-U.S. Ambassador to Japan, Douglas MacArthur II, nephew to famous U.S. General Douglas MacArthur, he ordered MacArthur to drive their car straight into a crowd of protesters in a clear effort to incite violence in the peaceful protest. They were quickly surrounded by enthusiastic protesters who rocked the car back and forth and sat on the roof singing songs until the U.S. Marines flew in a chopper to rescue the hapless duo from their grim fate 
of getting themselves stuck and being forced to listen to teenagers chant about not wanting to go to war. This horrible experience, from which these two fragile man-children claimed to never quite recover, was referred to as the Haggerty Incident, the poor babies. Five days after Haggerty's plot failed, on June 15th, Zenkin Curran activists stormed the Diet and were met with a brutal response by the Japanese police. One student protester from Tokyo University named Michiko Kanba was killed by police, and her death sparked the largest demonstrations in Japanese history against both the escalating police brutality and the ratification of the security treaty. As the resistance to Kishi and the U.S. imperialism that he represented raged across Japan, at almost the exact same time in South Korea, the April Revolution to overthrow the corrupt re-regime was taking place. The events of the April Revolution were kicked off by the murder of a high school student by police during a demonstration against rigged elections in March 1960 in the port city of Masan. The death of this student sparked widespread demonstrations led by students throughout Korea, and on April 26th, Ryu was forced to resign and fled to exile in the United States. Members of the pro-democratic, student-led April Revolution instituted a parliamentary system, and the newly elected members of parliament appointed South Korean politician Yun Po-sun as the president of the Second Republic of South Korea. The success of the student-led pro-democracy demonstrations in Korea made the similar protests taking place in Japan seem all the more significant of a threat to conservative hardliners in the Japanese government. And when Kishi attempted to call tens of thousands of radical hard-right members of the Japanese self-defense forces, many of whom were also members of the Japanese mafia known as the Yakuza, he was talked down by his right-wing colleagues, who feared a total government overthrow, and he was forced to cancel Eisenhower's visit, and finally resigned on July 15, 1960. The illegitimate security treaty was ultimately ratified, despite the protests, but Kishi's replacement as prime minister, Hayato Ikeda, made it clear that there would be no further attempt to change Article 9 of the Japanese constitution, the article which had been largely under contention that does not permit the government of Japan to form a military. While Nobusuke, the monster of the Showa-era Kishi, resigned, the conservative Democratic Liberal Party remained in power in the Japanese Diet and has done so up until today. Kishi did not retire from politics after his resignation and continued to have a major influence as an active member of the Diet for the next several decades until his retirement in 1979, but he was never able to realize his goal of remilitarizing Japan. In what can clearly not be viewed as any sort of coincidence at all, on July 14, 1960, the day before Kishi resigned from his post as prime minister, a 65-year-old man named Taisuke Aramaki walked up to Kishi as he was exiting his house in broad daylight and stabbed him six times in the thigh. Kishi was rushed to the hospital and survived the assault, which Aramaki denied was an assassination attempt, stating that if he wanted to kill Kishi, he could have done it, and that he wanted to, quote, encourage him to feel remorse for his actions, end quote. Given the fact that Kishi was the descendant 
of a distinguished samurai family, as well as the significance of samurai culture to many of Kishi's right-wing allies, this incident seems to present the appearance, at least, that some sort of samurai thing went down that was also instrumental in Kishi's resignation. Just as tensions slowly de-escalated in Japan following the resignation of Nobusuke Kishi in the summer of 1960, they were rising again in the newly founded Second Republic of Korea. A for effort, if you ask me. They certainly lasted longer than the gap sin coup that Horace Allen Newton brought down in three days, but the CIA still got them pretty quickly. And just a year after its establishment in 1960, the Second Republic of Korea was overthrown by General Park Chung-hee in 1961. The similarities between the two revolutions really shouldn't be ignored. If Horace Allen Newton may well have participated in inciting the gaps in coup in 1884, just so he could turn around and, quote, save the royal family from the conspirators and then take over Korea himself, then in all likelihood, agents of the CIA were a major factor in the April Revolution and were planning a bait-and-switch to get their guy he into power once Re was out of the way all along. Textbook Presbyterian, I mean textbook American espionage. If we recall back to the previous episode, it was not until the 1961 CIA-backed military coup that instated Park Chung-hee as the leader of South Korea that Sun Myung Moon's Unification Church was able to rise to prominence he was not able to get the traction under the Rhee government. The overthrowing of Rhee and the later coup and instatement of Park Chung-hee appears to have given the CIA total control over South Korea, and only then were they able to raise their boy Moon to power. Kishi had welcomed Moon to Japan before stepping down as prime minister in 1960, and since being stabbed six times in the thigh and forced to resign in disgrace barely slows this guy down, apparently, he used his continued political influence as a member of the Diet to support the establishment of Moon's Unification Church in Japan throughout the 1960s. Within four years of Moon's first arrival, and only like 15 assassinations and two government overthrows later, by July of 1964, Moon's CIA-backed Korean polygamous cult had been granted status as a, quote, Christian religious corporation within the country of Japan. Within a few months, they set up their headquarters in a building right next to Kishi's home in the Shibuya ward of Tokyo that Kishi had used as his official residence when he was prime minister. You may recall from the previous episode that 1964 was a significant year in the United States of America as well, for a variety of reasons. Both of my parents were barely surviving their respective abusive childhoods, victims largely of my radical grandparents' strange cultish beliefs about Jesus and nuclear war. And John Laughlin had just published what many consider to be the first sociological study of a new religious movement called the Unification Church that he had, quote, discovered operating in rural 
Northern California, and Southern Oregon. Small world, isn't it? With our contemporary understanding of CIA operations, which it is so important to keep in mind that our understanding of CIA operations is entirely based off of what the CIA themselves have disclosed to the American public. So it is absolutely so far from the entire picture. The Moonies in California were less of a new religious movement and more likely some sort of CIA psyop that the federal government were running within the state of California. In this light, John Laughlin's doomsday cult reads as less of a groundbreaking sociological text on new religious movements and more like the absolutely iconic 1956 anthropological essay by Horace Minor, Body Ritual Among the Nasimara. By seriously studying the day-to-day life of people in the Moonies as though they were practicing a, quote, new religion, Laughlin was really studying his own religious and cultural identity as a white American Protestant, reflected back at him through a funhouse mirror of political and social filters that made it appear quite different, (laughs) certainly gave it its own flavor, when it really was the exact same thing he himself had been raised to believe. While it might seem surprising to some people that the federal government would recruit its own citizens into dangerous psy-op cults, as far as many citizens of the USA are concerned, it's almost to be expected. The constant presence of federal government spies who have embedded themselves into every element of popular American culture is such a common occurrence throughout all of American history that it's basically a joke at this point. The Coen Brothers movie Burn After Reading and the cartoon series Archer are both perfect illustrations of the general cultural awareness members of the American public have of the at times hapless and at times horrific machinations that various intelligence agencies weaponize against both innocent American civilians and each other. It's similar to there being so many undercover drug enforcement agents that they just are the cartels at this point. The number of people who are both actively working for the FBI or the CIA, as well as participating in popular cultural movements such as spiritualism, art, music, cinema, theater, and academia is staggering. A lot of them don't even try to hide it. I've had several art professors brag to me about how they also work for the FBI. Like, what kind of secret agent are you that you are bragging to your supposed target about being a secret agent? A bad one. And what kind of professor are you that you are spying on the university and your students for the feds? A bad one. Bad spies, bad professors, But the biggest sin of all, in my mind, is that the vast majority of them are just bad artists. 
So much of the shit art in the art world today was generated by fascist spies that are just bad at everything, but remain in positions of power and authority despite their incompetence because of their nominal loyalty to the feds. And my tax dollars pay their bullshit inflated spy salary while the feds make sure they get all the prizes for making the shittiest art in the world while real, genuine artists who don't want to waste their time playing secret agent man get absolutely no financial support from the federal government in any way. Since the George W. Bush administration shut down the National Endowment for the Arts in 2008. But the government gave you a big gun and a 6K salary and told you to go ruin the art world, so that makes you cool, I guess. Not. Just shoot me. Just shoot me with your stupid fucking gun and spare me the suffering of having to listen to you talk about your bad art and your mommy issues one more time. Anyway, since no one has shot me yet, and I also have yet to simply expire from the sheer boredom of being constantly surrounded by fascist brutalism and capitalist abstraction, then I guess I'll continue. By 1964, Moon's Unification Church was the main state religion of South Korea, and Moon's followers had infiltrated every aspect of the personal life of Prime Minister He, right down to tutoring his children. The headquarters of the Unification Church in Japan were right next door to the former Prime Minister and monster of the Showa-era Nobusuke Kishi's house, and even Moon's infiltration of the United States itself was well underway albeit somewhat less glamorously, in the form of a bunch of guerrilla settlements hiding out near the Oregon Vortex, who I am sure were quite unhappy when curious PhD candidate John Laughlin randomly showed up and began an unprovoked sociological study of them. Not ideal, Luckily for John, he was also working for the largest university system in the country that just so happens to be owned mostly by the U.S. military, and his professors would have missed him if the Moonies just took him out, and they would have raised a stink to the university administrators, and that would have eventually reached the ears of higher-ups in the United States military— so I imagine that they just sort of humored him until he happily went away with all of his notes intimately documenting how the CIA runs its anti-government psyops. Interestingly, despite its popularity and critical acclaim, Professor Laughlin's first book, Doomsday Cult, is no longer in print, and if you try to find a PDF copy of the text online through, say, Google Books, you will only find a PDF of an entirely different book linked in the entries that claim to be the book Doomsday Cult. And it is here with John Laughlin's close brush with possible CIA assassination that we will end part two. We will pick up with the Mooney saga again next week in part three, in which we will focus on the crazier rituals put into practice 
by Sun Myung Moon as his unification church, now in position, rose to prominence across the globe and he used performative religiosity to disguise a global human trafficking scheme and defraud his congregants of billions of dollars, all in the name of supposedly fighting communism. Remember, information is power, autonomy is sacred, and joy is the antidote to fear. In the words of the great poet Mary Oliver, you do not have to be good. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Until next time, stay ungovernable. Bye, everybody.